couple weeks ago, about three weeks ago, I preached on Isaiah chapter 38 about Nehemiah and Isaiah. And interestingly enough, the next week I got my copy of National Geographic History Magazine. It's bigger than the regular National Geographic. And opened it up, and the first article, is this seal the mark of the prophet Isaiah? Apparently they were digging in around the Temple Mount, and uh, they found a half-inch seal that's got Isaiah's name on it, and most of the word prophet. And about 10 feet away, they found a seal from Hezekiah which indicates very clearly that those two were associated together. Now, this is the first indication that we've ever had in terms of physical evidence that Isaiah ever existed. Well, of course, apart from the book. (laughs) And the book is quite a book, too. But um, it's rather interesting and significant to me that right after I preached on that passage, I read this article and found this. Apparently, they had already dug this area And they had a pile of debris, and they were sifting through the debris, and they found these objects. So you might want to Google it or look it up and read a little bit more about how they found it and how they recognize it's belonging to the prophet. The prophet's got some more words to say to us this morning, and we're jumping ahead to Isaiah chapter 49. Um, Is there a Bible up here? There's not. (laughs) I should have grabbed my Bible. Oh, never mind, I, I don't need it. <laughs> you don't need the Bible. I don't need the Bible. I got the text right here. I, I, I'm going to begin at the first verse. Now, you notice it starts at number, verse 8 on your um, note sheet, and that gives you a little bit more room on the back for notes. Isaiah chapter 49, beginning in the first verse. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, now we're beginning what's on the sheet. In a time of favor I've answered you, In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. 
They shall feed along the ways, on the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them, or compassion on them, will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Cyrene, perhaps it's China. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, for the Lord has com comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even though these may forget, I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on as an ornament. You shall buy them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement may yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in it. And then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they will bring in your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. Let's give praise to God. When we left off, we were coming to the end of the first half of Isaiah. And we had a rather interesting story about Hezekiah's illness and his bitterness and a psalm that he wrote explaining that. We have one more chapter in that section of Isaiah, chapter 39, in which Hezekiah pulls a rather big blunder. He welcomes the Babylonians who've come to give their good wishes to him because he's gotten well and shows them everything he's got. All his treasures, all the treasures of the temple. I mean, he's showing off. Perhaps because he hoped that they might become an ally. Babylon at this time was just a little province. Assyria was the big power. Babylon soon would become much more powerful. 
Well, Isaiah the prophet shows up unrequested and proceeds to pronounce a judgment upon Judah. Hezekiah's kingdom is going to fall to Babylon. They're going to be carried away into captivity. His sons will be made eunuchs in the courts of Babylon. God has finished with the disobedience, the iniquity, the sin of this people. And we come to chapter 40. Now it's interesting, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, last verse of chapter 39 and the first verse of chapter 40 just flows right in. The last two lines of the scroll are the first verses of chapter 40. There's no real break. We don't have chapters and headings in the original text. But there is a very significant change that takes place beginning at chapter 40. Before it was mostly confrontation. Lord confronting his people, the people of the nations, with their sin, their faithlessness. But now there's a change that takes place. And the first words are, comfort, comfort, my people. Say to Jerusalem, your warfare has ended, your iniquity has been pardoned, and you shall receive double for your sins. Chapter 40 to chapter 46, those 27 chapters are a whole change in the relationship of God to his people expressed in words. And as it's almost outlined in those verses because the first section from chapter 40, 41 through chapter 48 talks about God, the Lord of creation and history, bringing his people back to the Holy Land. And he even names the person that's going to do it, a person who hasn't even been born yet, of a kingdom that hasn't even existed yet, Cyrus the Persian. Then he proceeds, chapter 49 through chapter 55, to talk about the work of the Son in delivering his people, the suffering servant, bringing pardon for their iniquity. And then finally, in the last section, from 56 to 66, he talks about the Holy Spirit gathering in the nations, celebrating the bride of Christ, which is the church, and they're receiving double the blessings that come. Well, we're kind of in the middle of this now, you see, because we're in chapter 49, the beginning of the second section. And as we come to this section, we're beginning to look at the servant, the servant of God, and this is the second of the servant songs. There are five servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And I'll mention a little bit more about them in a moment. First one is in chapter 42 where it talks about the gentleness of the Christ that's going to come. He won't even extinguish a burning reed or a candle. He's, he's being called to ministers people. Here we have the second of those songs in the first verses that we read. And uh, as it talks there, it talks about the fact that this is very clearly a man, an individual born of a woman. His name was given to him in the womb. It's like the angel came to Mary and said, His name shall be Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. One who has been called to be my servant, my chosen one, the one who will deliver my people from their sins. And then as we go on through this section of Isaiah, we come to the very heart of it, the very heart of the gospel. He was bruised for our iniquities. He suffered and died as a lamb. He was slaughtered on our behalf. Isaiah chapter 53, actually 52 to 50, 
53. Focusing on the work of Christ. And we're just beginning that section here as we come to this. And what I want you to see as we get into this text, that I'm going to really be focusing on verse 13 and then unpacking the verses that are around it. Now verse 13 says, after talking about the heavens singing in joy, he says, For the Lord shall comfort his people and compassion have compassion for his afflicted. Now those are rather interesting words. I was rather surprised when I was looking him up in the concordance and the dictionaries as I was preparing this passage. The word comfort is also oftentimes used to say relent or repent. The Lord is comforting his people, not, you know, just a, it'll be all right. But he's saying, there's a change that's taken place now between me and you. Comfort, comfort, O Jerusalem. Your warfare is ended. Uh, your iniquities have been paid for. You shall receive double. Comfort is an, actually a change in relationship now between God and man. And how God is going to bring that about is the substance of these chapters in Isaiah. The next word I want to focus on is that word compassion. Now that's a very significant word and probably the subject of our talk this morning. Compassion is a verb. And if anybody here is a Hebrew scholar, I don't think we've got too many here, but it's in the PL stem, which means it's intensive. So it's not just, you know, I'm sorry. It's I am really full of sorrow over this. I am pitying this situation. My tenderness, my mercy is strong and it's just pulling me. And it's also a verb. God's compassion is action. Not, well, I'm really sad my people have gotten caught up in this sin, but I look at them, I see the need, and I am going to act. And the third thing here is notice it's for the afflicted. Now the afflicted here are not people that have got themselves into trouble. They are in trouble. They're helpless. The word actually comes from the root for the word to force. These are people who are under the thumb of others. These are people that are suffering. These are people that are being exploited, that are being abused, that are unable to help themselves, and they're overpowered. God says, I, will comf I have comforted my people. I will have compassion on my afflicted. Now, you have to note that Isaiah wrote these words over a hundred years before the Babylonian captivity even came about. And the 70 years of being in a foreign land and suffering all that hardship is still in the future for them. In fact, you can go on beyond that because there's Babylon and there's Persia, there's Greece during the intertestamental period, there's Herod and Rome, affliction after affliction after affliction. Well, you know, today we're still confronted with this kind of affliction. Yeah, many of you probably don't even bother to turn on the news because it's so depressing. 
But we all know the hot topic right now is the immigrants, the borders, zero tolerance, children's separation, travel bans, building a wall. And this isn't just a problem for the United States. The EU, the European Union, is facing tremendous crisis because of immigration pouring into their, their countries from Syria and from Africa. There was a ship that tried to land in Italy, and they were turned away. They tried to land in Monte Carlo. They were turned away. Finally, finally, Spain let them dock the boat. All around us we see immigrants, refugees, the homeless, the addicted, the impoverished, the hungry, the marginalized and discriminated against, the exploited and abused, corruption, their squalid cities and camps, um, tent cities. People live in cars and on sidewalks. Families are being broken up. Walls are being put up. There's, they're being driven by war and violence, disasters, poverty. It's interesting, I just got a copy of um, Smithsonian Magazine Friday. And they give me these statistics. In 2016, there were 22.5 million refugees fleeing from violence and issues threatening their lives. 22.5 million two years ago. In 2017, we have 12 million fleeing violence with their own, within their own countries. They haven't even become refugees yet, but they're fleeing from danger. Their shelters being destroyed. And there were 19 million people displaced by disasters. Earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes, floods. You know what all comes closest to home for us who are so media aware as we see the images of children? Children suffering. And right now, it's just gripped the attention. There was... Thousands and thousands of people and thousands of marches took place yesterday of people upset about the separating of children from their parents at the border. Children are our future, and to see them abused, afflicted, it touches us greatly. So now we need to get back to our subject. I've wandered a little bit off there, but my wife asked me, why did you choose this passage? I didn't tell her, but this is the reason, because I heard them say a couple weeks ago on the TV that, well, we're going to end this child separation thing. They asked the president, why? Well, I guess I have compassion. And then we have the attorney general saying, well, you know, it is the law. The Bible says we have to obey the law. Well, it got me thinking, what does the Bible say about God and compassion? How does God feel about the afflicted? And so I started looking at the concordance and reading the verses. In Psalm 103, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear him. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, 
So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, and his righteousness to children's children. Exodus chapter 34, the Lord is parading his glory before Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he declares, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. Well, you can go on through the scriptures, uh, James chapter 5, which we're going to read in a couple weeks. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of God, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Well, Isaiah has much more to say in chapter 54. He says, for a brief moment I deserted you with, with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, if you look through this passage in chapter 49 of Isaiah, and it is very confusing. My wife still doesn't understand it. She told me I better make it clearer when I preach this this morning. You will see that there are reference after reference to God's compassion, His concern. And there are lots of allusions and references to children. Hey, compassion and children. This is the passage I probably ought to preach on because it's an issue that's before us right now. How does God feel about our world, what's going on around us, and what does God want us to feel, and how does He want us to respond to these things? Well, it's interesting because this passage has three different I don't quite know what to call them. Reactions, maybe. They're not objections. I first started to call them complaints. But they're expressions of negativity that are coming about as they're looking at the whole thing. The first one is in verse 4, which you don't have before you, but if you've got your Bible, you can look at it. Here we have the servant. The servant, the chosen one of God, the one born of a woman, called from before the foundation of the world to be the savior of his people the one who has given a mission his mission is to come and bear the sin of his people and to bring salvation to them and he, he is a light to the world the nations will be drawn in drawn to him because of the work he is going to do and in verse 4 what do we read But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. What? What? That it started me thinking, because I read those verses and I went, that doesn't seem appropriate. But this is the point. The point is that having 
Christ here is speaking from His humanity. The Son of God has become fully man. Born of a woman. Called to a really difficult task. And as you see right here even in the text. And verse um, 7. To one deeply despised. Abhorred by the nation. A servant of rulers. As we go on in this section of Isaiah, we're going to again and again see that Christ is going to receive tremendous abuse, tremendous suffering. And here we see, speaking out of his humanity, as any human would, this is just too hard, and I have accomplished nothing. Christ dies on the cross, he's buried, he rises. Sends into heaven. So what's changed in this world? Well, everything has changed, but you can't see it. Because what's changed is God's relationship with sinners. But yet sin is still there struggling, and affliction and suffering continues. Christ is speaking there, as any human would, expressing the fact that it doesn't seem like anything has been accomplished, but actually this was God's plan. And it's interesting to notice because here we see in verses 6 and 8, the mission of the Messiah, the mission of the servant, got to go to this page, it's no like, first of all, let me do 8. In the time of favor I have answered you. So here's the answer to your question. Was this in vain? In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you. I will keep you. You'll get through it. And give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those in darkness appear. You know what he's doing? This is bringing in the year of Jubilee. The Old Testament had a time, 49 years I think it was, and that the year of Jubilee would come and everything would go back to the beginning. It's like you push the reset button on your computer. And go back to the, um, what do they call that? The basic way it was set up before you changed, made all those changes to the, and stuff. The reset. God resets things with the year of Jubilee. And it's actually a picture of what God is going to accomplish when he comes again. The new heavens, the new earth. All things will be restored and changed. And we see here that it involves restoring heritages. We see it involves um, apportioning, uh, establishing the land. But most of all, saying to the prisoners, come out. Isaiah chapter 61, which is the fifth song of the suffering servant, is the one that Jesus quoted as he rolled out the scroll in the synagogue and says, today this is fulfilled in your sight. I have come to fulfill these words. Okay, well, the child says, this is hard. God says, it's necessary. This is the only way that God's justice and God's mercy can kiss. 
It's the only way that God can deal with the guilty because he's a holy God and at the same time minister to those he gives his son for on the cross. If there was any other way, if Israel, the nation, could have done it, well, we've already learned they couldn't in the first 39 chapters of this book. Was it in vain? Well, there's another objection that comes along in verse 14, another bit of negativity. After God says, I will have compassion on the afflicted, we get these whiny words. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. And again, this is a very human expression. You know, there are times when you just don't feel loved. And here we have the words of Isaiah condemning them for their sin and their iniquity and, and then assuring them the Father's love is going to be there. It's like a child has a spanking, you know. Well, do we spank children anymore? I don't know, but yeah, I got spanked a few times. And you know how after you spank them, you put your arm around them and say, I still love you? That's showing compassion. That's the kind of compassion God has. But the spanking itself is rough, and oftentimes it leaves, as you're in the middle of affliction, and we shall see in a moment, that's a part of being God's child. Um, it's a time in which you need the reassurance that, yes, I do love you. And God says, a mother with a nursing baby will not forget her child. Well, maybe not. I mean, we know of incidents nowadays where addiction has caused problems like that. But I will never forget you. Your name is engraved on the palm of my hand. I'm holding you fast. I've got a grip on you. I'm not going to let you go. Have we been forgotten? Forsaken? Well, it's interesting to notice some of the things in these verses. This is another thing that drew me to this passage because the imagery here is so much like the stories we hear about the refugees trying to find a home and a shelter. Look at these verses here. Verse 9. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness appear, they shall feed along the ways. On all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has compassion on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Okay, you're going to go from Guatemala or um, yeah, all those places down there in Central America, and you're going to go to the United States. Well, how do you got to go through? Deserts, wastelands, mountains, blazing sun. No water. And then we hear stories about people that actually put out water for people that are making the run through the border. We've had people die because they're smuggled in trucks and there's no, no water and, and it's so hot. Hardship is a part of the journey. And we ought to be aware of that when they arrive and knock at our doors and we say, you don't belong here, go away. People walking up to immigration carrying nothing more than their children and their clothes on their shoulders. 
after days, weeks, maybe months of hardship. That's not the picture here, is it? The hardships are there. The struggle is there. But there's someone with them to take them along on the journey. I will make my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar and behold, those from the north and from the west, even from that far, far land that nobody can quite figure out because they didn't think they knew the name of China back in those days, but it's a possibility. God is bringing out the prisoners. Those who were enslaved in their sin, who were under affliction, we're pilgrims, we're refugees. The way to glory is well described in Pilgrim's Progress. This life is going to have its affliction, its hardships, but the Lord is walking with us. He's holding us in His hand. He will not forget us. He will bring us to Himself. And there's another thing here. Because one of the reasons why so many people are suffering in this world is because of the oppression. The corruption, the violence. Why are they coming to America? Because they will die if they stay there. Why are they fleeing poverty, abuse, exploitation? God sees these things too. Look at the end of this chapter. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant to be rescued? Thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those that contend with you, and I will save the children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. Ooh, this is getting gory. And they shall be drunk with their own blood. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Again, I say it, justice and mercy have to come together. God's justice has to fall upon the wicked, even as His mercy falls upon those He's redeeming. And so we live in a world where God is bringing judgment slowly and ultimately at the great judgment throne as all things come to their climax. But God has no willingness to overlook the things that are causing the affliction, the suffering that people are experiencing. God is aware, and actually God sends us to have a part in ministering to the needs of the needy. We'll get to that in a moment. But we have to realize this, that justice and mercy go hand in hand. Justice is concerned with inequity. And iniquity, mercy, compassion is concerned with guilt and shame. And those things are healed. Christ takes that affliction, that suffering. No wonder he cried out upon the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, didn't we just read that? It's because God put the affliction of the world upon his shoulders in order that he might deliver. 
Well, there's one more thing to say here before I go to my last point, and that's this. We live by faith, not by sight. He says here very clearly, verse 23, You will know that I am the Lord. Those that wait for me shall not be put to shame. What is waiting? It's living by faith. The servant, too, exercises his faith. I don't see the results here as a human suffering on the cross. I don't see it, but God is my strength and my hope. He will keep me. Christ not only suffered, but he also lived a life of faith before God that was acceptable. And we could get into the theology of all this, but we're not going to wander off there right now. But there's a lot to be learned about what Christ has accomplished as you go through this lengthy section of Isaiah. One more point. Verse 21. A little bit more whining here. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. Who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Now what is the these there? What is the these? Previous verse, the children of bereavement. Okay, remember I said I like this children theme that's running through this passage. We have this picture, and here are these people that are feeling exhausted, barren, hopeless, and suddenly the multitudes are teeming in. Children are coming to them. The very things they thought they had lost are coming. God says, it's too small a thing that I just bring back Israel and Jacob. Behold, I'm going to reach out to the nations and bring in people from the ends of the earth. The gospel is going to reach out way beyond the Jewish world to the whole world as they're drawn in to the Savior in Christ. It's all through this passage. It's all through the book of Isaiah. God is at work expanding His kingdom by bringing in the multitudes. And they're presented here as being children. And what a wonderful thing, having felt that you've lost all your children, Israel has ceased to exist, dragged off in captivity, Judah dragged off, and many of their remain, and suddenly discover that God is repaying them double and triple, and a great multitude are coming and arriving. And look at the language here. I mean, this is part of that part that doesn't make, maybe my wife needs it. To understand, he says, for example, verse 22, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the people, and they shall bring their sons in their arms. Your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. I mean, here you picture these refugees carrying their kids to the gates, and now we have a picture of God's people being carried to the gates of heaven in their arms and on their shoulders. What a marvelous picture that is. And these are the nations. And then a little bit farther down, we, we have the illustration, oh, it's up above, excuse me, of um, verse 18. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. 
As I live, you shall put them on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places, your devastated land, surely it's too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away now. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in it. God is making room. He's reaching out to the world and embracing them. And kings shall be your foster parents. Queens shall be your nursing mothers. God is reaching out and doing a wonderful thing. And, and yet we've got to realize, we've got to realize this is a cosmic thing. This is not yet. The scriptures have us in a world that is now, but not yet. Now, Isaiah was in a world of not yet. They were still waiting for the Messiah. Jesus has come. He's accomplished his work. That's done. But the completion, the climax, the second coming is yet to come. And we're in the world of now, but not yet. But there now is a reality, even though we may not see it. And the church is growing. And the gospel is going out. And who is carrying the gospel? The Lord raises up a signal to the people, and the signal is the word of that's sent out from Him. You know, Christians are compassionate because their God is compassionate. And we are compassionate because God has been compassionate to us. The Apostle Paul tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted by God. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, it's going to be hard. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. What do we do? Well, I think we probably know some of the answers. We need to pray for the afflicted. We need to pray for those in need. We need to pray for those that have to make decisions about those in need. We have to pray against those who oppress. We need to go before the Lord and ask for His compassion to be poured out. Then we need to start showing mercy, and we're struggling along and learning how to do that. But we have been comforted, and now we must comfort and show mercy. You know, it's interesting because we're sitting here looking at a situation in our nation where the doors are slammed shut, the walls are being put up, people are told, go away. And the picture that we have in the gospel is that the Lord opens up the gates of heaven. The walls are torn down, and he reaches out and embraces and welcomes. A refugee will always 
be welcome in the kingdom of God. And we're all refugees, moving away from our sin, our frailty, through the righteousness of Christ, and that righteousness alone, we're welcomed into his kingdom. Well, three complaints, or negativities, whatever you want to call them. Three verses that answer those things. To the servant, God says. As soon as I find my verse, okay. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The way is hard for the servant, but the glory of God comes out of it. To those who feel they are forgotten, he says, you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me will not be put to shame. And then, to those who cannot believe what they see, it all seems unreal. All flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob.